Today, we are talking to Chad Fowler, the CTO of Microsoft Startup Advocacy, and we discuss what it means to be venture funded, common mistakes founders make, and how to avoid them, and how you can become an expert on a subject through the process of writing a book. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. You know, I was just talking with uh, one of the technical, like a technical leader in cybersecurity at Cisco, mm-hmm. and right before this call, and uh, he says, oh, "Is he related to Martin Fowler?" And I'm like, "I have no idea." Maybe. Maybe. Maybe remotely. <laughs> third cousin? We'll go with third cousin. <laughs> yeah, could could be. We we should actually check that just to really set the record straight. We don't know. We'll um we'll do DNA testing. We'll do like a twenty three and we'll get twenty three and me CTO on the show. Oh, and then we'll get yeah both of you on the show, and then we'll do the mouth swabs. We'll throw me in there just to make sure that like we're not somehow related. Yeah, of course. We don't <laughs> so, we don't seem to be though. I mean, your your uh your history. I mean, you're Chad Fowler. I am. I have been since I was born too. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it was it was interesting because I saw the Twitter happen, and then a couple people mentioned you know my book, and my resources, and then later I got the Google ping, and I was like, oh, there's Chad, and then I was like, why does that name sound so familiar? And I'm sitting there thinking, and and then I realize, um, so I look you up, and I start looking through your books. I'm like, oh, I have his books, like they're wow. in my office. Like, I was reading you years ago when I was out in Portland, and I went to I think like Powell Books, like a very large bookstore, and yeah. I went and I just grabbed a stack of Ruby books and I read through them all to learn uh, just different designs, um, testing, a couple different things that I was really interested in at the time. And then they were the good books that I kept around. And so it was very cool to see that. Yeah, cool. Sometimes I forget that I've written books. I tend to forget to mention that when I introduce myself these days. Yeah. Hi, I'm Chad Fowler, the writer of books. Which book? No, no, no. I'm the writer of books. Like I just write books. <laughs> I have, um, have you read this one? Peter Thiel? I have read that one. Oh, yes. This is the one. So I, I read the back, which prompted the purchase. And then uh, I had, you know, read a little summary and I was like, you know what? Peter Thiel's like the person to read if you're going to read. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like he's, if you want to know about invest like startups, right? Why not talk to one of the like most prolific investors, period? Yeah. And and entrepreneurs. Yeah. And entrepreneurs. Yeah. We just talk. This is the, this is the podcast. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'd like to welcome myself to the podcast then. Oh yes. Yes. We don't, we don't really acknowledge the audience. (laughs) 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 They're more like, look at it. Oh, like, thanks Jake. We can be as off or on topic as we want. Really what we found when I started the podcast is that people just like listening to us talk about technology stuff. And if they buy the person, then they're interested in what they have to say as far as experience and advice. So you're running the podcast like it's a product and you're doing funnel optimization. 100%. Yeah. We bring value to the market and the only thing we're interested in is how to do that better. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So you, you do that with your books, right? You take an iterative approach with your writings, like always reaching out to people and engaging and find out what they want to hear about. 
I guess. I mean, it's been so long since I've written a book, it's hard to even remember. Um, maybe, maybe with books, it's not quite like that because it's a more monolithic process uh, and frankly, an outdated process, I think, which is partly why I was saying I'm, I forget to introduce myself as an author because it seems like everyone's an author now. And the fact that someone bothered to print what I wrote on a bunch of paper and ship it all over the place is not so exciting these days like it used to be. You know, like you were talking about going to Powell's and picking up a stack of books. That's not yeah. what people do anymore. Uh, used to be. Like I used to go when I was starting out because I'm self-taught. Uh, I was a musician. I got excited about programming. Yes. <laughs> Are you too? Are oh, you yeah, man. I play that? drums and guitar. Acoustic, oh, cool. electric, and drums. And saxophone. Oh, cool. I think you told me that. Yeah, saxophone is my main instrument. Yeah, alto sax for about ugh, a decade. Yeah, nice. Alto is my main thing too. Oh, nice. But, you know, back in the day, I would go to uh, Barnes & Noble. I think yeah. Was the one. That was the main one back then. Then Borders came out, and that was amazing. And you'd, I would go and buy so many books, it was hard to get them to the car. And then just sit and go through them and literally read all of them. And maybe not cover to cover, but most of them. It's not like that anymore. You know, there isn't like this. You don't do that anymore? No. Come on. What, what bookstore do you go to and find Amazon? Books that you actually, yeah, but that's not, a, <laughs> it's not the same anymore. But and look, now, they give me my books. And look at this. This is a whole stack of books right here. You see that? Those are three different boxes of books. Physical paper books. You want to you do some unwrapping real quick? Sure. Why not? Let's do some unwrapping. Jake, we're going to need a knife. One second. That's a serious knife, Jake. All right. Chad, I'm so excited, man. Look at this knife. Yeah, oh, that's quite yeah. a knife. You live in the South, really. Yeah, this is Jake's knife. This is not my knife. <laughs> <laughs> Jake is prepared at any point in time to go to war, I believe. <laughs> so. Well, we all, all are in the South, right? That's part of the culture. Yeah, where are you at in the South? I'm in Arkansas. Oh, nice. You're, you're in a safe space. Like, that's a, that's a space where, like, you're not going to get attacked first, so you can do, have some planning time. Like Florida, we're surrounded by water. We're primed for attack. Yeah, that's true. There's no reason to attack Arkansas. It's already killing itself, basically. Oh, no. <laughs> we, we need to get some uh, Tony Robbins and Zoloft shipped to Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So you don't go to bookstores anymore. How many paper books do you order now? I don't know. I've kind of started getting them again, but it's not a very good format, really, especially if you travel a lot. You got to carry this thing around all over the place. Heavy. Like I remember I used to travel to Europe and my suitcase would be heavy because I had so many books with me when I went on vacation. But the worst thing is all of these books that you're about to pull out of this box, if yeah. they're technical books, they're already obsolete. And you don't know which parts are, are current and which aren't. The software doesn't ship like it used to. It ships every day all the time. As a technical author, that's also very frustrating if you're trying to maintain a monolithic book about technical stuff and they keep shipping changes. Like when I, even when I did the Rails Recipes book in 2006, I had to like hurriedly change a bunch of stuff and we worked with the Rails core team so that I could release it right when, I think it was Rails 1.0 came out. That's when I released the book. So mm -hmm. at least I could say this book is relevant for Rails 1.0, but by Rails 1.1, it was not up to date anymore. Some of the principles though, like most of the book was useful still. Sure, but that's a pretty yeah. lame medium if you have to immediately start apologizing for it. 
is that what your uh, experience was? Like, did you get a lot of um, outlash from the book? Uh, like backlash, you mean? Like, yeah, I'll make up any other words. Yeah. Outlash. Yeah, I like outlash. Yeah, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with words. If actually, when it, I get, I make like words come out of me all the time by accident that don't really exist, but people know what they mean because they sound like what they, the feeling. And maybe, so, maybe outlash is a word because you do lash out, right? So yeah. uh, I decided recently that when you talk about feedback, the unit of measure should be a back of feed. So you can say like, how many backs of feed did you get for that podcast interview you did? And, and were they positive? Yeah. Similar. I like that. Backs of feed. Yeah. I don't know if I got backlash or outlash from, from Rails recipes, but there was definitely a bunch of maintenance involved. And the, the frustrating thing is, I mean, fortunately by then people were doing PDFs. In fact, Pragmatic Bookshelf was one of the ones that led the way in doing, you know, publishing PDFs of books. They weren't DRM'd or anything. So we could keep releasing new versions of the book, but if you bought the paper, then it was just out of date within months, totally out of date. That's so sad. But now we have digital, mm -hmm. but, but you, you do a lot of maintenance to the books. I did then. Yes. I haven't yeah. in a long time. Yeah. I don't think there, there's much need for the maintenance. Like you put it out, it's relevant to what it is. People in that moment consume it because they need it and the market wants it. And then later you, when enough change has happened, you put out a more relevant book. I mean, you could have written yeah. a book for every major version of Rails and I would have bought each one. But you've written a book. You know that that's a pain. <clears throat> a pain. You don't want to actually do that. Yuck. Make new books? Yeah, constantly make new books. I love I it. Always, oh, wow, you are strange. I always say that people, everyone wants to, everyone who says they want to write a book, they actually want to have written a book. They don't want to write the book. I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I've actually like already have five books planned and I have another one already complete. I just don't want to release two like right back to back. What's your next book then? The one that's complete? Leader Bits. Bits Leader. of Leadership. Oh, yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. I take little, like I take concepts from like, here we go. Book number one, pulling out of the uh, box. See that one's, that one's not obsolete. So that's a valid right. purpose right there. Right. See, I'm buying valid. My strategy is to buy books in the buy things that deserve to be in this medium. Yeah, right. I do that too. Yeah. I have right here on my desk. I have a book called uh, Scrapbook Notes and Blueprints by William Parker, who is a free jazz bass player. Ooh, a free jazz bass player. Yeah. That sounds my first instrument ever was a bass guitar, but I didn't like it didn't stick with me for some reason. Hmm. Yeah, I had it. It was a Carlo Rovelli. It's not a good young person instrument, really, because you don't get the limelight. Yeah, I was, I was, I was like eight, and they gave me a bass. And then I was like, why, why a bass? And they're like, well, your cousin has drums and your brother does a guitar, so you get the bass. And I was like, okay. <laughs> big, big design up front. Yeah. <laughs> Family band. So this is a good book. You enjoy this book, right? I read, I read that in paper uh, on a cruise ship. What, where were you cruising to? It was, uh, I would like to, to say before I mention this, that I considered myself, my wife and I considered ourselves to be unlikely cruisers. Uh, it feels like such a, a suburban way to, to have a vacation, but we were sent on a cruise <laughs> by my company and we chose the Baltic Sea so that we would be surrounded by old people instead of, you know, like 
people trying to party and drink like crazy. That is true. Yeah, I'm not a big uh, I'm not a big party drinker person. Yeah, me either. Yeah, certainly wasn't back then. So, how old are you now? You're you're early early twenties, right? Yeah, forty four. Forty four. Nice. I just Did turned that... forty four four days ago. Oh, happy birthday oh, to no. Chad! Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that. For sure. No, no, uh, you got to leave that one in. <laughs> I'll be um, really angry if you don't leave that in. So here's the problem with books. You want, we were talking about, you were talking about the problem with books being uh, ephemeral, right? <laughs> they, they don't last very long. And by the way, that's like my word of the week. So ephemeral? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I saw it and I really enjoyed it. And I was like, I'm going to just inject this into my vocabulary for a little bit. Just use it in, in every conversation at least once. Uh, yeah, for sure. That's yeah. Until the next word comes along. <laughs> so, so I, uh, the problem with books other than, other than the ephemeral ness, there's a new word of their nature. Um, you, there's like 20, 12, 14 things like in every book, like good pieces of information. But if you don't do something with that information, it's just whoosh, like, and it's gone. Like, unless if you act upon it, like knowledge, Everybody's like, oh, knowledge is powerful. And for a while, I was, I was on that train or on that ship, on that cruise ship. The knowledge is powerful. But now I'm like, knowledge is the potential of power. So I have this book here. It's got knowledge in it, which is potential. And if I give you that book and you consume that book, you've simply transferred the domain from the text of the pages to your you know, mind structure, right? And so it's, it hasn't done anything yet. It's still, it's the potential just being transferred. And it's not until you take action with that potential and use it um, that it actually does something and it actually exerts its power. So like knowledge is the potential of power. And then the actual exercising of that knowledge is powerful. I agree with that. Although there is an implicit assumption there that I think is carried with books uh, specifically that medium. And the implicit assumption is that the knowledge contained therein is valid and correct. Yeah, you've got, it's a trust medium. It's got the higher, way higher trust than anything else. Right, because you believe that it's, it's vetted by a publisher. And it, really the fact that you're holding this paper thing as a designed cover and all that gives it uh, more of a feeling of authority than it even uh, deserves. Because, you know, who are these publishers? You don't know them. It's just like having a college degree. You don't understand really the accreditation process for MIT. And, and I doubt, did you go to MIT? I didn't. I did, I did take a course at uh, MIT. Uh, all right, forget MIT, then Stanford. No, no, let's use it. Let's, let's, be, okay. let's, yeah, let's beat them up for sure. I'll be in Boston later this year. So I'll be like, hey, we wrecked you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we all assume uh, a CS degree from MIT is a, good. Great, a great credential to have. Yeah, uh, it's branding. But, but why? Yeah, we don't know. I didn't go there. I haven't seen what they learn. I haven't seen anything really about MIT other than I know some people who went there and they seem smart. Yo, you want you want the general population to think critically because that's not like a thing that'll happen. <laughs> I don't think they will. I'm fine with that. But I'm just saying like, the, the college degree and the fact that this book is printed on paper and distributed by O'Reilly, those give it some proxy for authority that they don't necessarily deserve. 
Well, look at the guy, the quote on this, on the front of this book called Scaling Teams is by Michael Lobb from Rands and Repose. That's, I actually just got into their Slack channel. Have you been into that? I have, yes. I, I spoke at a conference with Michael last year in Sweden. What? He's one of one of those people you make fast friends with. And we, we spent like three full days, almost all the time together. And then I haven't spoken to him since, but I consider him a friend. Those are the best relationships, right? When you get with someone, you click with them. It's just like, we're here. It's now. We're getting, getting along great. And then you can, inst- you can, three years can pass. Then the next time you're in that situation, it's just like, boom, you're right back at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Low commitment. And it's like highly rewarding. <laughs> I like <laughs> that. And actually the person I was just speaking with that I mentioned at the beginning of the call from Cisco, he just got back. He was referred to me by this company called Naked, N-A-K-D, which is one of the largest clothing um, companies, like brands in Sweden, but they're spelled N-A-K-D. And so we had Nicholas on the show. He was a CTO. He went in to that company. I think they had like 30, 30, 40 people and they were like $20 million and they had a lot of technical problems because the software wasn't shipping and they were online retailer primarily. And he came in there reworked everything, boom, they went from 30, 60, 90 people from like 20 million to 100 million inside of two years because they got their technology right. Wow. Yeah. And so he referred me, so then the Cisco technical leader was over in Sweden looking to expat to Sweden and meet some people. And so Nicholas met him and then referred him to me. And then I did a call with him this morning. And now now we're talking to Chad Fowler. Happy birthday to you. I didn't expect this to be such a disturbing experience. Yeah, there we go. So you're, let's talk about like Chad's, like a day in life, Chad. So you're traveling, you're speaking at conferences. This is what you're doing mostly? Yes. Yeah, I have a new job. Um, so the day in the life of me has gotten different and it's hard to tell you what the average is now, but I, I work at Microsoft. You work at Microsoft? I do. So what are you doing at Microsoft? HoloLens stuff? <laughs> no, uh, I am in charge of a thing called startup advocacy. And so I work at Microsoft because I was CTO at Wonderlist and Microsoft acquired us almost three years ago. And uh, I became the general manager for that product team for a while. Then I had to move back to the US and I became CTO of the division that, I, that Wonderlist is in, which is a hodgepodge of stuff including the software for the new Surface Hub 2 thing that was announced today, which is going to be pretty amazing. It's a, a whiteboard. And really, I wanted to get back into the startup world because that's where I belong. And rather than leave the company, uh, I was introduced to Charlotte Yarconi, who runs this group under, you may know of Scott Guthrie. He's my boss's boss. He's sort of famous in nerd world, especially on, in Microsoft Corners. Uh, my job is to be the to to shape the new voice of the company to the startup community, both in and out of the startup community. Ooh, I like that. And the people that are on my team are all uh, CTO and residents at the accelerators around the world. So in the two months I've been in my job, I've been traveling all over the world, going to these accelerators and meeting CTOs of local startups in. London, Berlin, Paris, Tel Aviv, et cetera. And so the so you run the team of like CTO and residents at the accelerators? Yes. Yeah. And and 
are they being employed by Microsoft or the, the accelerator themselves or is Microsoft contributing? Like, how does that work? So the accelerators in this case that I'm talking about are the Microsoft accelerators. Oh. It's called ScaleUp, and it's like for Series A level companies that you know have revenue and they're looking to, to scale up sales and get into enterprise, government, et cetera, which are places that Microsoft can really help because we're, we're obviously big and large enterprise uh, clients, government, healthcare, education, Places where trust are really important. Mm -hmm. Microsoft has a huge presence. And so we're trying to take the, the power that we have and apply it to the startup community and, and amplify what startups are doing. You guys are trying to do some good. And we are, yeah. My, my philosophy for my team is help first, sell last. And if you never get to the selling part, it's fine. Yes. So um, the, my daily life is really just meeting with startups one call after the next and seeing how I can help them. And if it happens to be something that Microsoft can do, that's great. If it's something I can personally do, that's also great. I tell, I tell people, feel free to abuse me. <laughs> um, you know, look me up on LinkedIn and see who I know, and I'll try and connect you if connections are helpful. I'll help you review your, your pitch deck for funding. I'll help you review your architecture for your, your service that you're building. And all the people on my team are similarly like-minded and ready to do the exact same sort of work. Wow. That's amazing. That's like, yeah, that's what we do. We do that at the podcast. I'm constantly connecting people like different CTOs, to other different CTOs and just whenever somebody needs help and they reach out, we kind of either I jump on a, I call them micro calls, which are like off the show calls where I just jump on and hang out and you know, answer questions and direct them to the right place and just kind of air traffic control relationships the best I can. Yeah, that's good. It's rewarding. It's like, it feels way better than anything else. Right. And I think, you know, it, as a company, if, if you take the approach of just helping people, it's not just altruistic because ultimately they will see us as a, a valuable partner, but it also feels good. And, you know, you see the, the positive influence you have on the world immediately as opposed to having that be an abstract thing. Instead, we see revenue as the abstract thing and helping people as the concrete thing. That makes sense. That makes total sense because we exist to bring value to the market. And so who doesn't want a capable, helpful individual on their team? <laughs> right. So who are, who are your listeners? So our current, we, our numbers are 72,000 active listeners, which means they listen to at least one episode a month mm -hmm. and they break up into the CTOs, current CTOs, um, experienced CTOs, new CTOs, and then next generation, which would be software developers, project managers, individuals that want to up into a technology leadership role. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And how, how can we best help them? So typically the feedback that I get is that they get value by, you know, hearing about you, uh, what you're doing, and then any specific areas that like I'm thinking here. So you do the startup thing. What's the most common mistake that you see when people come in these frequent meetings that you do with um, reviewing pitch decks and things like that? Yeah, that's a good question. The most common mistake, I'm, I'm going to probably tell you more than one and Great. neither will be the most common, but you know, off the top of the head, um, one category I see is startups, they have some passion for an idea for a tool they want to build, 
and they're so focused on the technology around the tool that they don't they don't get what it takes to be venture funded and the difference between a venture funded thing and say an app you would build and put on an app store you know it's a, the way that you need to approach these challenges is really different and not everything should be venture funded obviously most things shouldn't be but you know when you're going for venture funding you need to have an idea that is about scale and you need to have a really grand vision around it and I often see people coming looking for venture funding and what they have is a tool and not something that can ultimately build into a platform. So I tend to ask people, imagine that it's eight or 10 years from now and you're, you're about to IPO and you're the CTO or CEO founder and you're about to do your roadshow. What in this imaginary scenario do you tell the people on the roadshow as potential investors about your IPO? And, you know, they're starting out with, I don't know, let's, I'm going to make one up so that I don't actually talk about a real startup, but let's say they're building a tool for error detection in JavaScript and web pages. And it's just great. And literally, like, I look at it and I say, this is great. I love this. But when you step back and you ask yourself that question, like, what is the big picture value this brings to the world? It's hard to see going from this is a much better tool than the one that we all currently use to this is a company that is worth billions of dollars. <laughs> and, you know, right. And if they can't figure out a path, like a make believe version of that vision, it's probably not a venture fundable company. So, you know, you have to start thinking about that. And then, so what I usually do is I say, give me that crazy vision. I know it's going to be wrong, but tell me, you know, tell me your, your daydream of what your company is like on the IPO day. Now back me up to the ridiculously pragmatic version of what you're going to do right now. So it's okay if right now all you've got is a tool that helps with error tracking of JavaScript on a web page. Uh, as long as there are a set of steps that I know aren't going to be the real steps, but I believe they could be from here to that IPO event. That I, I see that you have like a framework for thinking about this as a business. Yeah, so I, you can see that they think deeper than just the right now. Or, or broader or bigger, maybe not even deeper. You know? Sometimes technologists are too deep and, and they just care about the depth of, of the technology and they're not thinking about the value of the thing they're creating. Or they are and they just don't get that you know, as an investor when you're, looking at, when you're receiving a pitch like this, you're not evaluating, is this a good thing? You're evaluating, is this a good thing that I believe can be big enough to let's say, return the entire fund that I've raised as a venture capitalist. And the reason that you need to do that, you know, like, uh, I'm not sure if all the listeners know, but the way venture capital works is they go off to investors, VCs go off to investors and they pitch and they say, invest in our fund and we'll, we will be your proxy to the startup world. So we'll be doing high risk investments and you can just trust us by owning a percentage of what we're doing, right? They are high-risk investments, and, and therefore, most of them will fail statistically. And if you're not betting that every single one that you invest in will return the entire fund, then chances are you will end up losing money. Does that make sense? That makes complete and total sense, yes. So startups, if they can think about the, the perspective and, and be empathetic toward investors and understand the entire chain of where the money comes from, they'll get a better idea of how to present themselves and even strategically how to position themselves if they plan to be a venture funded company. 
dude, way to bring the value. So I was like, that's, that's like in my head because I did private equity due diligence for several years, but I have never talked about on the show that connection between you're going to pitch the VCs and the VCs have then gone and pitched independent people for, to, to get their money in a fund so that they can be their arm of investment in the market. I've never explained that. Like I knew it, but yay, Chad brought it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, sometimes those people, the VCs are pitching, they're called LPs. And the LPs are sometimes fund of fund or something, or they're a fund manager for someone else. So there really is this hierarchy of they had to pitch someone in some cases. And in every case, it ends up really being about trusting the person, you know, believing in the credibility of the person you're talking to. Even if you're a VC, if you're a founder of a startup, you, you ultimately just have to, have to convince someone that you get it well enough so that you know, everything is going to be different than you expected. So the investor needs to believe that you're going to react in a way that is valuable and, and agile and all that at the right, you know, at each step. Yeah, I just finished up Ray Dalio's uh, principles. Have you come across that one? Mm -mm. So he is a $170 billion fund manager. And oh, wow. yeah, he is in the top five, like wealthiest people, like influential people in the world. He just keeps a real low profile. But he has a book basically that came out and he's like, this is how I run business and how I run life and 1,700 people at that, that company, that hedge fund. So it's called Blackwater. But he has this concept that he talks about called believable people in his book. And it's like this recurring theme he continually talks about. So when you were discussing that, it was bringing that up in the back of my mind, like, yeah, believable people. And he discusses the different traits of believable people and how he identifies them. And I liked it so much because I have a chapter in my book called Validating Experts. And so I was really interested in how like the same thing that I've come across and found to be true, other individuals have found to be true too. That's always exciting for me. Yeah, that sounds good. I like that, that term, believable people. Me too. And it seems like the people who aren't believable are the ones that aren't actually listening to you most of the time. I don't know why. But somehow empathy and being believable seem to be tightly connected. Listening and being believable, tightly connected. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Because the people that listen understand the pulse of the market. Like you can't understand what all the greatest Ruby developers think about structuring systems unless if you've listened to all of them and then can form your opinion and try what they've expressed and have your own experience built on top of it. Yeah. And you can't, you can't communicate, really, you can't communicate well at all unless you're empathetic. You need to understand who you're talking to. That's why I asked you who your listeners are and what they want, because otherwise I'm just sitting here talking. <laughs> I love it. But I promise you, though, that um, I am, have the conversation structured in a way that they will definitely bring value. Also realizing like, you know, when you write the books and, and you're just you, right. And you go about your experiences and you have your family, but people will build up things in their head, right. We're really good at that and create, mm -hmm. create these structures in their head. So the act of like, while I'm listening to you, I'm understanding how the audience is perceiving it because I interact with them so much. And so just by you being here and talking, um, even about the most abstract things about books and the medium of books and things like that, they are just like very engaged with it. And that's, that's bringing them value. The act of being around Chad Fowler 
is useful because as humans, we have this like superpower, this hidden superpower. So if I were to consume all of your content, like let's say Tony Robbins, like I'm going to consume all of Tony Robbins content. I'm going to listen to his audio. I'm going to read his books. I'm going to go to his seminars. I'm going to do all of this stuff. I can completely consume all of his. And what I will get the superpower I'm referring to is the ability to start processing thoughts similar to that individual. So the more I'm around them, the more immersion I am around this person, the better ability I have to think like them. And then that's what we try to do here on the podcast is to have great CTOs and great leaders on constantly so that this next generation, they will binge listen or they'll completely consume all of these episodes. And then they'll have the macro ability to start thinking like these great technology leaders. Yeah, I have a, a chapter in my book, The Passionate Programmer, called Be the Worst. And the, the gist of it is, uh, it's from a Pat Metheny quote, the guitarist. He, his advice to young musicians is, always be the worst player in every band you're in. And the premise is exactly what you're describing, that if you surround yourself with people that are better than you, you level up, you start thinking like them. Some of it is, is the filter, because you, know, you see what they do, you hear what they do, and you start to filter, as you were saying, process information through that filter. You can't process it like them. You can only process it through the model you've created of them, of course. But the other is that you, you end up with different expectations for yourself when you're around people who are better at something than you are. So like probably the biggest kickstart that I had in my career was I went to this training thing. It's one of the only times I ever took any sort of a class about software development. It was called Extreme Programming Immersion. Mm. And uh, it was in 2001. It was very early in the days of agile software development. It was actually before the Agile Manifesto was released. I remember because while I was there, Dave Thomas from the Pragmatic Programmers yeah. sent me a message. Dave Thomas fans. Yes. His little, his little gnome. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he sent me a message on IRC, I think, with a link to agilemanifesto.org, mm-hmm. encouraging me to be one of the first signatories outside of the Snowbird Utah meeting they had while I was at this thing. But it was Bob Martin, his company was running it, aka Uncle Bob. Uncle Bob. Um, and Ron Jeffries was a teacher. It was all the original Agile, you know, extreme programming people. Kent Beck was there. Oh, I like him too. Yeah. And, and in fact, Kent, I mean, it, it was really all of them, but Kent was really the one that sort of flipped the switch for me. Being around him and all those brilliant people for a week, I actually said to my coworker as we were driving back from this course, because it was out of town, we'd driven to it. I felt so much smarter that week, just being around those people. Like it brought me up to a new level. And I told him, I need to work with people like that all the time so I can always be like that. And I think the only way to do it is to become one of those people. So that became my like new goal in my career path was what does become one of those people mean? Write and publish books and speak at conferences and do whatever it takes to gain a level of notoriety just so I can be associated with them and hang out with them. Yeah, are you like describing me? <laughs> You're doing the same thing. This is this is the podcast. I mean, I didn't realize that people wanted to talk about the craft and that there wasn't a place to talk about CTO craft and and specifically with the CTOs and the technology leaderships. So when I wrote the book, I started reaching out to people and asking them before I published the book, you know, am I going to get flamed? And because I was nervous putting myself out there for the first time. 
And then they turned into these great conversations, which we started sharing. And then eventually that became the podcast. And I found it incredibly easy to call up Intel and say, hey, I want to talk to your CTO about CTO stuff. And they'll just set a date. Like, it's kind of cool. Yeah, you get a lot of access to people. The same thing happened for me when I started and co-organized RubyConf and RailsConf, the official conferences for those technologies. And the people that I was able to to meet by, for example, organizing RailsConf keynotes, it was really amazing. You know, so we had Kent Beck and Bob Martin, all those sorts of people as keynotes. Obviously, David Hansen, I knew him from earlier days. DHA. Uh, I love that you do. You're like the the rapper that stands behind the main rapper. And just, <laughs> I'm the yeah. man. I'm the CTO. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what it is. The flavor flav of the of the group here. But I really the thing though is that like I legit this is like me. Like I legitimately this is what I love. And to to be You're a real life hype man. Yeah, I <laughs> for, for this topic. <laughs> yes, I am. And it's like the least sexiest thing in the world. Be like, yeah, I'm a CTO hype man. I'm I know all the CTOs. I love them and I, I support them. Like I like I geek out when somebody comes up with a new perspective of how to look at technology leadership or they 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 solve some problem in some interesting way I didn't think of. Right, like that's what I enjoy. And so, writing apps for you know seventeen years and coding and then getting to sort of come out into the space of what I've been seeing my whole life is just, it's exciting to me. And it's the, all I want to do is two things. I want to meet great people, right? In the space. And I want to bring value to the community, which I've been a part of my entire life. Mm. And so by the podcast allows me to do that. Writing allows me to, writing is the best way I found to teach myself. Like one of the best ways, like I write, I do, I, I learn, right? And then I write about it and I take some, and then I go take some experience and I go edit my writing. And then that process is, is the, um, the best process for me to enjoy my life. Yeah, Martin Fowler told me years ago that whenever he wants to really learn a subject, he writes a book about it. When I heard that, I thought it sounded backward. Like I thought you, when I was young and foolish, I thought you write a book, you're already an expert in the subject. But then I wrote Rails Recipes. And when I did that, it was the second book that came out on Rails. And I was not actually doing Rails full time yet. I, I wasn't really that interested in web development. I was a Ruby programmer for several years already, though. And in the process of writing Rails recipes, I became literally one of the world's leading experts in Rails because I read all of the source code, constantly talked to the Rails core team about what was going to be happening in Rails and what the wrong and right ways to do things were. And I met all the people who were, who were leading the way with the technology. But before I started, I could basically just do a hello world in Rails because I was not so interested in it. Yeah, I had, a, I had Ryan Singer on the show. Oh, cool. Yeah, you know Ryan. Yeah, from uh, Basecamp now. Yeah. Yeah, so he works with, I, like, I think the top three people at the Basecamp are David, Jason, and, and Ryan. They kind of like work together. Yeah, that sounds right. So I have, I wasn't going to bring it up, but like, I'm curious to know now because of what you do with the constantly reviewing stuff. So we have, I've been doing the show and the book and stuff for the past year, right? And all the conversations that we've had, I've learned so much talking with all these CTOs. And then I'd been out of product for the first time in my entire life, like not actively designing a product for you know almost a year. And that kind of like is something I also love too. Like I don't just want to completely let go of it, right? So I had this series of calls, like 
five or six calls back to back with CTOs who were experiencing rapid growth. And they just kept bringing up this topic of conversation about finding great leaders or as they expand from 30, 60, 90, like how do they cultivate leadership? And that was the, the topics of conversation that we were having. And I get a lot of feedback from the book about leadership. And then I read a lot of leadership books because I'm personally very interested in technology leadership. And then I decided that we're going to do this, the startup using all the principles we have about the market and how we bring value to the market. And actually the opposite, it's like not taking VC and, and for the, for your first customer. So the idea is that we will go, the value has to be great enough to the market that the individuals in the market that, that will be customers of your product will actually contribute and become customers early so that your product exists in the market because there's such a demand. And then we have to be okay with what the market says. Yeah, that last bit is the most interesting thing you said, I think. We have to be okay with what the market says. And maybe that is one of the top things that founders don't get that I talk to. The ones that aren't making it and that ultimately don't, I think they're not okay with what the market says. They have, a, they have an idea and they're so passionate about the idea, they become myopic. And if you don't know that word, it's next week's word for you. Uh, <laughs> I love myopic. Yeah. Uh, they become myopic and they, they can't see that maybe their idea just wasn't a business. Maybe it's even, like I said about the other uh, topic, maybe it's a good thing, but it's not a business. And if the market doesn't want it, it's not a business. Well, yeah, and it can, it can be a good thing, the market could want it and then not be willing to pay enough for it to be a business. You can want yeah. something and then not be willing to hand over enough value for your business to operate. Right. So, you know, there might be some amount of, well, we're not communicating it properly. Sure. But once you've tried a couple of ways and it doesn't stick, the market has spoken and it's time to change direction. And it's about reducing the space between. So like, I'm not interested in continuing building and setting up meetings, uh, one big meeting in like three weeks. I'm interested in two or three meetings a day. I need to get through 10, 15 people who would be customers. And, and it's going to morph with the potential customers because they're going to say, look, this is valuable. It's just not valuable at the rate you did it. it. We would probably have to do something like this or here is what we would, this value would mean to us. And then I would have to restructure the business in a cost production way, like to meet what the market would tell me that, yeah, you know, it may not be this, but we'll give you this for that. And then I have to then structure my business and cost to see if it makes sense to bring it to the market. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a, that's a fun experiment. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll have to have a look. Yeah. I mean, I, my, again, I, I just, the other ex reason I really like it is because it gives me the excuse to be constantly extracting leadership lessons out of these great books. By the way, I'm going to extract a leadership lesson out of your passionate, passionate programmer book. Excellent. Yeah. Let me know what you do. Because, I mean, I like you, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> I like you too. Let's make this awkward. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. I think Jake right. can edit even like some music in there that'll make it even like more tension. <laughs> you know, if I had video, we could really make it awkward by sitting silently for a while and just looking at each other. <laughs> it wouldn't translate the audio very well, I don't think. Oh man, I'll like flip your, I'll, I'll do something with your picture, maybe. <laughs> like make the eyes go back and forth or something. So if there's any, is there any way I can bring you value um, off the top of your head? And if not, any time that ever comes up that you need to um, use me or leverage me or the platform, 
whatever it may be, uh, you just let me know because I'm, I'm here to serve the market and you, my friend, are part of the market. Well, thank you. I'm, I am out to help startup CTOs. I want to know them and I want to help them in whatever ways they want. So if you help them know that I want to do that, then I'm happy. We get an insane amount of outreach. I get because the, the book that I wrote people find from going from developer to CTO, it's like a very specific path that they're looking for. And currently mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're searching those terms, they get my articles and they, and they find the book and then they buy the book and then they reach out to me because I'm constantly engaging with people and asking them what they think and you know, wanting to provide them value. So I, I will, if there's any way that we can think like I can pass them along to you or you could pass people along to me to help. I currently have no business model, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this is a passion project as my sort of way to give back to the world from my um, previous technologies that I've been able to build and um, do well from. So yeah, this past year I have just built a team, gotten an office, have a studio, I've do it as professionally as possible. We currently have one, two, three, four, four or five people on the team four people in house. And then I was like, if I build a megaphone and bring the market enough value, then the market will, it'll work, you know, like something will come up an opportunity will arise. And then I'll have a chance to even give back on a larger scale. So, yeah, well, it's, you know, I'm in a fortunate position that I personally don't have a business model other than being employed right now but I'm able to be employed by a company that, that cares enough to allow me to just be out helping people and getting a salary for it, me and my team. So uh, we're in a similar situation in a sense, although I have less at risk perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I do risk in a way that isn't risky, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. In our field, I, it's hard to really screw yourself up too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I, I only risk what I'm willing to put into something and I don't, I don't, I don't do the bottom of the ninth thing, you know, good advice to everyone. I'd say, yes, avoid bottom of the ninth guy. (laughs) (laughs) The person who has experience and continually getting out of tough situations is putting themselves in difficult situations (laughs) just as a, as a different way to look at it. Right. Oh, that guy's yeah. a lot of experience in a ton of horrible situations. We want him on our team. Uh, hold on a second, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that person's putting themselves in there. Uh, two, two questions to wrap it up. The first question is, if you go back in a time machine, you get to hang out with Elon Musk. He has a time machine. You go back and get to talk to yourself 10 years ago at 34, right? Almost four days to the day. And you get to give yourself a piece of advice. What would it be? Oh, 10 years ago. Um, for, for a second, I thought you were going to somehow weave Elon Musk deeper into this and I'm glad you didn't surface Um, Musk. So yeah, if I had a time machine, I'm talking to myself 10 years ago, I think, what was I doing 10 years ago? 2008. I would tell myself to more quickly get myself out of the business of trading hours of my life for money. Oh, that's such a good one. Yes, keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would like that one, but mm-hmm. that's it. I mean, we're all, even my book, 
Yeah, uh, the passionate programmer is really geared toward people who are trading hours of their life for money. Because um, that was my mindset. And that's the mindset of most human beings. And, and actually, the fact that I even say that comes from a place of privilege, uh, you know, because I'm able to, to risk enough to, to think the way I do now. Um, but here's an example of something completely irrelevant from a specific to CTO perspective. Uh, in the last several years, sort of by bad luck or initially, I have found myself being a landlord of rental houses. Mm. Had I started that longer ago, I could retire right now, probably. Not that hard. And it's not something you have to be rich to do. So that sort of thing, you know, thinking holistically about how to set yourself up so that you're, you're free, I think is the advice I'd give myself. Yes. That's it. I just say yes to that. Yes. <laughs> I agree with myself. <laughs> I, yes, I agree with yourself too. <laughs> and then uh, the last thing is people want to find out more about you. I see you're pretty active on Twitter. Um, Twitter better than LinkedIn to reach out to you and say hello? Yes, much better. Um, I, re I reply to all tweets directed toward me. And LinkedIn, I reply to very few of them, but I accept every invitation on LinkedIn. So please find me on LinkedIn and add me as a connection because I want to have the most connections of anybody on LinkedIn. <laughs> That's the only reason though. That's it. Yeah. I probably won't talk to you on there, but I want to be your friend. It, <laughs> you want their integer. I have 6,565 connections on LinkedIn. Oh my goodness. Do you really? I mean, that's pretty lame. That pales in comparison to my Twitter numbers, but here I'm accepting 19 more right now. Dude, Chad, I'm looking at your picture on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Why didn't we have video? You look like a rock star. Oh, I am. No, I'm a jazz star actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. All right. That was great. Thank you so much, Chad, for coming and hanging out, man. This is awesome. Oh, thank and you. if I'm ever in Arkansas, <laughs> I'm, I'm most likely to, I'm actually going up into Murphy, North Carolina to the mountains this weekend for some hiking with family. But uh, the next time I'm going to look at your conference schedule or, or follow you on Twitter to find out when our paths will cross at a conference. So uh, I can get a high five and say hello. All right, good. And a selfie, obviously. And a selfie, of course. Yes. All right, then. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chad. You have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.